0: guest is Jennifer Myers. Jennifer's story is straight out of a Netflix series, especially if you've seen Narcos or Ozark. As a recent and innocent college grad, Jennifer soon found herself involved in one of the biggest marijuana drug trafficking rings in the United States. After her wild journey of illegally moving millions of dollars of marijuana and eventually getting caught and being sentenced to three years in prison, a new calling and life trajectory was being birthed. After Jennifer learned about our country's massive incarceration problem, especially with nonviolent offenses, her passion to be an advocate for women in prison and youth with incarcerated parents led Jennifer to co-found Rise to Empower, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering girls and women to make positive choices. Their work with At-Risk Teen Girls led to their program being accepted into the San Diego U.S. Federal Probations Reentry Initiative, where they facilitate high-risk women recently released from federal prison. Jennifer is a TEDx speaker, ghostwriter, federal prison consultant, and author of the award-winning memoir, Trafficking the Good Life, among so many other incredible titles and things Jennifer is doing. She is incredibly inspiring, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear this one. So without further ado, today's episode with Jennifer Myers. So I think what's so cool is, I think we've been working together for over a year now,
1: yeah, about ten months.
0: But it wasn't until yeah. about four or five months ago where mm-hmm. Tucker was like, "Hey guys, do you know Jen's experience and background?" Mm-hmm. He said, "No," and of course, now I've dove into your whole story, and you know, even looking at you and knowing you, like I was like, you would be the last person I would have ever expected to go to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you share with everyone a little bit about your? upbringing and and how that that whole um series of events transpired.
1: Yeah so um like I always like to say I, I grew up on a farm in Ohio and um I had a pretty I had a really good childhood actually um I was a pretty high achiever um I was on a gymnastics team I competed um nationally at one point um I ended up, um, I was always a cheerleader, and then my senior year, I was captain of my cheerleading squad, so um, my mom was on the school board, she was a a math teacher in high school, Um, so it was a pretty um, normal childhood, and I really learned that, you know, to be sort of like a good girl and to achieve, and um, so I ended up going to college. I followed in my parents' footsteps and went to Ohio State University.
0: I don't know if you know I (laughs) went there for a semester. Oh, you did? Yeah. I When I found that <laughs> out, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah.
1: I loved Ohio State. I, I really loved college. Mm-hmm. I joined a Swarty. Um, my mom was a Pi Fi, so I followed in her footsteps and became a Pi Fi. And I ended up, I was a dance major, so because I, I loved dancing too. So um, I loved dancing at Ohio State. And I ended up um, joining the, or auditioning and making the Ohio State Dance Company. So um, I was determined after college to you know, begin a career as, as a dancer. I was a modern dancer, and that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I ended up, instead of going to New York, I ended up going to Chicago. Um, and for a few years, I really started auditioning and, and joining different smaller modern dance companies and um, performing and doing a little bit of choreographing, um, performing at universities, um, different smaller venues in Chicago. And I, you know, at the same time, That I was doing this, of course, it didn't make hardly any money. Mm -hmm. You know, I was rehearsing and dancing at night and performing on the side. And, um, you know, I had a full-time job. I was working as a medical assistant. So, you know, it was... Full-time
0: job and you were traveling and dancing.
1: Yeah. I mean, we would rehearse at night until, you know, know, 9 o'clock at night. And then on the weekends, we would have our performances or shows. Or, you know, you'd rehearse for like six months for a, you know, two-night show. So it was... But I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, and at one point, this is when I was 24, um, I, my swarthy sister called me and, and she knew I was in a, not a, the best relationship. I always had some struggles with men and she told me there was a guy I should meet and that he was really nice and that he had a lot of money and that he traveled a lot and he was traveling through Chicago. So, um, I was excited to meet him and I met him. We went on a date. Um, he brought his friend with him. I didn't really understand that. <laughs> That's a weird uh, <laughs> It was statement. sort of weird, <laughs> and uh, I felt a little out of place. I mean, you know, I could tell. I mean, here I was, you know, again, like I shopped at thrift stores, and I was an artist, and you know, he seemed to have, you know, really nice shirts and and just a different lifestyle than me, and I could tell that. And and since he's brought somebody with him, I I left, and I called my friend, and I said, you know... Th- he doesn't like me, he brought somebody with him, I mean, I really didn't understand that, so um, I was really surprised when he called me the next day and left a message on my phone, this is before we had, like, consistent cell phones, <laughs> Yeah. so, you know, I had just come home um, from dance rehearsal and heard his message, and I wasn't gonna call him back, and, and literally my friend, uh, my sorority sister said, Jen, you, you have to call him back. Like I told him that you were a really nice person, so I'm like, oh my God, I had to call him back. So I called him, and when I did, he actually um, was just getting ready to fly back to Phoenix, and he invited me to go with him, which for me was sort of like racy, like, ooh, what do you mean, go with you, like now? So like, yeah, now, and so I went to the airport, and I remember he paid, you know, like $1,000 cash for my ticket, and, and, you know, I went to Phoenix, and it was a whole different world to me. I mean, everybody drove nice cars. We went boating. Um, people seemed to have a lot of money that he hung around with, and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And,
0: I, and were you at all curious, like, how he was no, making? No.
1: No. He, you know, he was a nice guy. Like, literally, he came mm-hmm. from Beverly Hills. He had he talked about having some different businesses. I just assumed he was an entrepreneur.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody had any thought that there was anything else going on other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up um, starting a relationship, and I dove in pretty quickly. We rented a place together in Chicago, a loft. He paid for it. Um, he would travel and fly in until finally, you know, once we made that decision, um, I remember I was sitting on the um, edge of Lake Michigan with him, and I remember this night because it was dark and our, our feet were in the water, and I write about it in my book. But he turns to me, and, and I had no idea. And he's like, Jen, I have to tell you something. And I'm like, what? And he said, I'm running a marijuana trafficking operation. I'm like, oh. And I, I don't remember feeling really shocked, but I'm like, what? And then he divulges that he's really scared that they owed, you know, over half a million dollars um, to the Mexicans. And that they, the Mexicans had taken somebody's son and kidnapped him. And that they had three days to get the money.
0: Oh, wow. So, <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I didn't leave. Um, for whatever reason, I.
0: Yeah, what was going through your? You don't remember? You said you know, your reaction. You
1: know, honestly, was? I guess for me, I was 24 years old. I mean, people smoked marijuana. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd smoked it. I didn't smoke it a lot, but I guess I was like, What's marijuana trafficking. Wow, well, yeah. like that's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit intrigued, I guess. and Took a thrill to it. A little bit of a thrill. And I really was like, oh, you know, like, I, that's how I always usually responded to people. Like, oh, let me take care of you. Or what can I do to help you? Oh. And, you know, he was like, oh, you know, I'm sort of upset. Like, I owe this money. And, and I was like, oh, like, let me, let me be your support. So I guess I got hooked in that way. Interesting. Isn't it? Like, I allowed myself to get hooked in.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. Do you do you remember, like, growing up and having that support pattern of just, like, supporting people always?
1: You know, um, no. I mean, in a way, my mom was always supporting me. Mm-hmm. I was very supported in my family. But whenever I chose men, all the men that I would choose usually needed some sort of support. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how it showed up in my relationships. So I oh. was usually the caretaker in a way. Mm-hmm. But... This guy I mean his, his name 's Dale, so let 's just say it his name 's Dale, yeah. you know he seemed to be able to take care of me. He was mm-hmm. older than me, so that fit for me too
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i didn 't leave yeah, and um, you know it didn 't take long until I ended up getting involved and literally it wasn 't long, honestly, before I realized i Didn't really like him as much as he liked me. And then I felt obligated to be with him because I was Mm -hmm. afraid to leave. I'd already quit my job. I was traveling with him. I had access to money. And I'm like, well, how do I change my life back now? Now I've glimpsed this world of having money and I can travel and more freedom. And so I asked him one day when we were in Maui, I'm like, I want to drive. Like, I want to make my own money. Mm-hmm. And so then I started getting involved in driving marijuana with
0: him. And when you say driving marijuana, like, I'm just curious, like, what does that even mean?
1: Well, I mean, I guess you could call it, say you're a mule, so... Oh,
0: like, literally driving... No, literally, like, oh, driving loads
1: of marijuana across, the transporting marijuana from one place to the other.
0: And you were the one driving it? Yeah. And did you ever, like, get freaked out that someone's going to just yeah all this pot in your car yeah. <laughs> I
1: did I mean there were so many times that we had close calls um I mean it's, i I started with two hundred pounds and then we would take maybe seven hundred pounds and in you know a van and and I remember one time in the van dale rear ended or we ended somebody, so the cops were there. And, I mean, the Oof. whole thing. We had, we've had many close calls. Yeah. Um, and until loads got bigger and um, we were driving in SUVs. And so sometimes it was an SUV with a trailer on the back filled with, with pot, uh, with bales. Um, sometimes um, we ended up at some point um, having what looked like a race car caravan, which transporting up to, like, 9,000 pounds of pot. Yeah. Oh What's with, the
0: street value of 9,000 pounds of pot?
1: Millions and millions oh, well, of dollars.
0: So you're driving millions of dollars yeah. in some of these.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and we would have, at that point, there was like a, a car caravan. So there were like two double dually trucks. The one that I would be driving with somebody else with me would have a, like a race car trailer on the back filled mm-hmm. with pot in the truck ahead, and then there would be like a couple, like an hour ahead, somebody behind us. And if anything, like if we ever would have gotten pulled over, like their job ahead of us was to create a diversion and to get into an accident.
0: It sounds straight out of like Narcos or Oz- <laughs> or Ozark, you know? Like that I've Never watched Ozark. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it's all going well until
1: seemingly it's all going well. Um at different times I definitely tried to get out of it. I mean, huh. I I was using my money at a certain point to go on this like desperate spiritual search. So I I felt like I was using it for good cause. Um, and then I moved to San Diego at one point and got involved in real estate and was, was trying to not like trying to get out of it. And one day I get a call from Dale and, and another guy that I used to drive with and, and they're like, Hey, you know, just rent a storage unit. You know, now we're having like an Atlas van truck, pick it up. Um, so I was like, okay, sure. You know, I'll make $10,000 for renting a storage unit. And, um, so I did that and all went well. And then, this was in 2002, I think, and I did it a second time, and I get a call a day later, and Dale calls me and says, um, when they went to drop off the load in Detroit, um, the house was raided, the SWAT team, and and somebody was arrested. So, I was like, holy shit. So, um, my name was on the storage unit, I never used a fake ID, um, so I didn't know what I was going to do.
0: Did you feel like at that point you were like, I'm going to get caught?
1: I was petrified. I mean, if somebody was arrested, I mean, I I'd never contemplated that anything could happen. I mean, I even drove with an attorney from L.A. once who was a high-end attorney. I mean, literally, people that should have known more about, like, the federal mandatory minimum guidelines, I had no idea. Like, Dale would always say to me, don't worry, you know, like, we'll take care of it. You'll just, like... You'll, you'll get out in a day or something like that. That is was not the truth. Mm-hmm. Not the truth.
0: Mm-hmm. And so then what, so someone gets arrested.
1: So somebody got arrested, and I ended up meeting um, a few weeks later with Dale and this attorney I told you about, Jack, who I really liked. And, um, you know, Dale's like, just, you'll be fine. He's like, you know, why don't you, it was so interesting because he said the Mexicans said that you have, they have a place for you. You could go. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? They kidnapped somebody's son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going there. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, no, I'm not going there. And he's like, just you know, don't talk or just stay quiet. Like Everything's going to work out. And he gave me some cash, and I left. And he's like, you won't be able to talk to me again, so you can talk to Jack. So I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was working at the real estate office where I worked, and I guess what I did is just continue... Life as always, I had a boyfriend, he knew what had happened. Um, I said, what, what am I going to do? And we're just like, I don't know. So I kept working and I continued my life for another couple months. And I think I ended up getting myself arrested because I ended up, the storage unit was hanging over my head. It was still in my name. Yeah. So I called the attorney, Jack. I said, what do I do about the storage unit? I need to do something. He's like, just call them and cancel it. So I ended up calling them. Oh, my God. I had no idea that the DEA had already talked to them. They were waiting for me to call. Oh, so
0: the DEA had talked to Jack already.
1: No, they talked to the woman at the storage unit unit in Tucson, which is where the pot had been stored, and it was in my name.
0: Oh, so they knew it was already there in your name?
1: Yeah, they knew. They They knew about. They knew about the storage unit. Somebody else had ratted. I mean, later we thought maybe the truck driver got stopped along the way. They they ratted out. So the de, you know, the SWAT team followed them to the drop off point because the truckers weren't arrested. Yeah. So they knew where the storage unit was. They had my name. They were waiting for me to call, and I did. And the funny thing is, the woman at the storage unit was like why uh, don't you have things in your storage unit i'm like i don't have that much stuff in the
0: storage unit and there was pot in there
1: no not then it was gone that was a temporary holding place
0: gotcha we we
1: the pot came in the marijuana came in boxes like
0: i don't know you wouldn't be able to know yeah
1: it came in when i was there and then we helped load it into the truck and it went to detroit that truck got raided so the storage unit is empty now, but it had held marijuana. Mm-hmm. So I was a part of the the whole scheme, yep. and so they knew that. So anyways, when I called, she, I'm, I'm like, well, there were a few things in there. And she's like, well, why don't you want them? And I said, well, there's not that much in there. But she's beg- she's hammering me because she wants me to talk. Yeah. She's like, why don't you want it? And so because I was so frustrated that she wouldn't let it go, I lied. And I said, well, because I'm going out of the country. <laughs> Which is the worst thing I could have said? Oh. I wasn't going out in the like, country. like she's running
0: from us. Yes. Yeah.
1: I lied. So the next day, the DEA came to the office and arrested me with an indictment. It was terrible.
0: So wait, get out. So <laughs> I guess I'm trying to understand. Yeah. Like if mm-hmm. they ha- could have indicted, why didn't they just? Why were they waiting for you? They wanted more information. they were trying to Yeah, it, they're, but, they're
1: trying gosh, to get more information. This to them, they had been actually I didn't know this, but there've been people caught before with money and marijuana found. This this was a 10-year marijuana trafficking operation. You, yeah. We can call it conspiracy. They'd been watching this for a couple years. They wanted more information. That's mm-hmm. what they do. They stalk you. So, but Jeez. so in a way I was lucky to get myself arrested because I think I ended up getting myself in a way like a better deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was taken, it was awful. I was taken downtown. Well, they took me to this weird place. When oh they, my, go ahead. So yes. I'm just, I know. so when they wow.
0: arrested you, was it like, did you just know you're like, like what, what was the feeling? Cause like you're going about your day, then you see an eight, like what, what was that? Like it was awful.
1: It was awful because I was sitting with, um, my boss who was also my friend and he had known
0: mm-hmm. he had,
1: when he hired me, he said, you know, I'll hire you as long as you're not doing Stuff on the side. Uh-huh. And I so I had lied to him. And so we we're in his office. So when somebody knocks on the door and we go to, and they're like, Somebody's here to see Jen. And she had this weird look on her face. It was a secretary. And all of a sudden we sort of walk to the door and the door opens and there's this guy standing there in tennis shoes, and he hands out a paper. He said, We have an indictment to arrest Jennifer Myers. And I remember I just wanted to sink through the floor and disappear. I I felt fear just just rush through my body, my friend looks at me, my boss, and with like utter like betrayal on his face. And and they take me and they take me into the other room and they pat me down and they handcuff me and and they're trying to Take my car to repossess it. I had a, a, a Range Rover, and my boss is like jumping into action and like, you can't take our car. Yes, we can. Then it was just like a and, scene. And, the, and, and th- what
0: are you th- like? What are you I, like? It's I'm over? in shock. No, yeah. I'm
1: I'm in shock. Is what I am. I feel like I'm all of a sudden five years old, and that I'm um, I'm not okay. Like I felt so vulnerable and so scared and so alone and unprotected. And I I I mean, it was it was.
0: Awful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, with all, like, the prison advocacy work you're doing, Mm -hmm. like, I guess what I'm trying to... And what I'm just so curious about is, like, from someone who has zero experience with... Like, I remember hearing a TED Talk from a gentleman who spent years in solitary confinement. Mm. He's got dreadlocks. I don't know if you know his name. He's, like, really big in the... Yeah, I don't know his um, name, but I... Yeah. Oh, what was his name? But anyways, I remember that was, like, the first glimpse, but... It's like I can't even imagine. Okay, I've seen Prison Break. You know, like there's some of these TV shows. Mm-hmm. I know you you were featured in something with Orange is the new mm-hmm. black, with Salon. A yeah, few years yeah, I wrote ago. an article for yeah that was magazine. gripping. We'll link that in yeah. the show notes. That was yeah incredible. Yeah, I loved writing. Um, but like, what? I guess it's just so hard for me to imagine. Like, what is your thought process? for, like, I'm going to prison. Like.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I was arrested, I was in shocks and that took a while to settle down. I mean, they took me to a holding facility and then they, I mean, they fingerprinted me. I was still in shock. They threatened me in a room. Um, You know, they're like, all your friends are talking. There's an, I mean, I was scared. And, and then when they took me to the, when I went into prison for the first time was downtown and that was a holding facility, but it's the MCC. So it holds, it's a huge, tall, huge building with people that are in there waiting to be sentenced. And I was so stunned when I was waiting to go into this building that I didn't know where. It was like we were standing in an alley with a DEA agent. It had been a really long day, and I remember when the doors opened, I just remembered I, I didn't want to go in because I was so scared of what it was going to be like in there. And I think that feeling of shock continued for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Eventually, at a certain point, you know, I found out that I was facing 10 years in prison. So um, it was... It's just one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe that I had put myself in that position. Mm-hmm. I was really upset at myself. Like, how could I have not realized the consequences?
0: Because it was almost like you were downplaying everything. Or like oh, not completely. Even, yeah. even it wasn't the, even a thing. Even
1: the attorney had no idea about the federal, federal sentencing guidelines. No idea. Nobody said a word about it. Not even a word.
0: It That to me is so interesting and it's why it's so important that you have a very clear sense of like what's wrong, like genuinely wrong mm-hmm. and right because it's so easy to, I think, mm-hmm. convince ourselves, of, oh, like this isn't a big deal. Like, mm-hmm. let me just like have a little hit of this Mm -hmm. if you don't know what's in there. And then all of a sudden it can take you down this rabbit hole. And then the scary part is then you you start becoming accustomed to that new thing which you're like, oh, it doesn't seem so bad. Mm -hmm. Because then then you find yourself down this loop end of like, holy shit, uh, how did I end up here? Mm -hmm. And it's from that first decision of, maybe not even realizing the magnitude of what you were oh, getting yeah. yourself into. That
1: first time when I was 24, when I said, oh, maybe I should drive the marijuana myself. That mm-hmm. made the whole rest of my life, I mean, the whole 10 years. And and it's, it's gripping, and yeah. it's tantalizing, and it's insidious. You know, for me, it was a business.
0: Yeah, but I think what, to me, what's so fascinating is like sitting here, I'm like, yeah. like from 10 steps back, uh-huh. not knowing you, I'm like, driving marijuana like that sounds like very dangerous but then I could also see like you're just going about your life you meet some charming dude mm-hmm. he's rolling in money and and you're watching him right so you're seeing him live there's mm-hmm. probably like mm-hmm. I don't want to say stress-free but like it's not for the amount of money he's making he's kind of just cruising You're like oh well I could do this and just yeah. get involved and and then one thing leads to another, and you have no idea what you just got yourself into.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, there was a lot of cash involved, and yeah. it, it was tantalizing. And, and you know, there's endless stories of women that I work with where, honestly, usually their criminal lifestyle started with a man. I mean, that's a very normal story. Now, I take full responsibility. Yeah. I wanted the money. I went after it. I was good at driving. I looked innocent. You know, it worked in my favor. Mm-hmm. And I still felt innocent. I still felt, felt like a good person. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like a criminal, but I was doing a pretty big criminal act.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about like what the first day was like? When you, do you remember that?
1: When they took me, you mean? Yeah, your
0: first day, like, okay, you're going to prison. Like, now you're going.
1: You mean before I didn't know I was going or when you mean, I got sentenced? So now you know you're going, oh, you're sentenced. Yeah, well, by, and, well, and it took me two, two and a half years to get sentenced.
0: So what, do you, what happens in that two and a half years?
1: People started cooperating. So they, so Dale and, and let's call it people in the conspiracy yeah. um, were trying to buy my silence. And so they were bribing me. And I wasn't talking. And, and cause I, at my attorney said, you're facing 10 years. I said, holy shit. And I said, well, what's next? He goes, well, there's no way out really unless you cooperate. And he was one of the best attorneys. Actually they paid for him. So they gave me cash to pay for him. And I said, well, I'm not cooperating cause I'm not talking about Dale, who mm-hmm. is my ex-boyfriend because I loved him mm-hmm. and he's like, it doesn't work that way. So I had not cooperated.
0: Wow. But so you did not cooperate with the government?
1: Yeah, not at all. I was yeah. waiting. And at one point, my attorney after eight months says, Jen, they know everything. Like somebody's cooperating. You have to cooperate or you're going to get screwed. So I finally made the decision to cooperate. And before I had, um, people were sort of stalking me. I had moved to L.A. I was working in real estate, opened up an office there. And one of the guys in the conspiracy well, came by and basically gives, you know, was supposed to give me $30,000 but didn't. Another woman gave me a bag of $30,000 like they were bribing me. Um and, and so what happened and what we found out later, what I find out like five months later is that my boyfriend Dale had turned himself in with somebody else that I drove with because they thought I was talking. So they turned themselves in. He wears a wire on everybody and gets everybody else indicted. So that's why it took so long, because now you have thirty-five people on one case, it ended up being another thirty-five people in New York. It was two cases tied together. So it took a while for me to finally get sentenced.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so you're just kind of like living your l- I don't want to say normal, to live. you're trying to live this normal life, but you gotta be, are you waking up every day? Oh my
1: God. I, first of all, I became a workaholic. I poured everything into work. Um, I felt like I couldn't make new friends. I had my boyfriend, but our relationship was getting torn apart because of the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved into a different house and then we were renovating a house and I felt so sick. I couldn't eat. I lost a lot of weight. I was drinking wines, you know, smoking cigarettes. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I did. And, um, I was completely under stress i thought i had an ulcer um it was it was i couldn't i, I was having panic attacks
0: <laughs> were you almost relieved then when you finally got sentenced i
1: was so you know yes finally whoo i'm i'm finally no. getting sentenced
0: because in a weird way oh, it was it's almost like the waiting was it's awful. like you know it's coming you're like fucking let's just have it
1: oh the waiting was awful yeah, yeah no it was terrible and, and you know some other things happened in between there but it was pretty bad so finally you know, it went from 10 years to seven and a half years to a deal like, oh, if you're good, if you're a good girl, you get maybe three years. We don't know. But I ended up getting three years in prison. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I, I'm just still so curious. Like, what's it like when you get like there's all these like perceptions like what it's like in prison. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a little bit of the first part of your book. Yeah. Um, and I or actually maybe it was on the interview where you talked about like all these bunk beds and you were like on the top. Bunk. Yeah. But yeah, like what is going through your mind?
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I was ex- I was ready to go in. That's for sure. And I'd been in the MCC, so I had some idea of it. Um, what was going through my mind? I mean, I was really ready to go in. I wanted this over. I couldn't stand the waiting. And I didn't know what the I didn't really know what it would be like inside. You know, was I going to be okay? Was I going to be safe? Um, and. And I knew what it felt like. The shame of even being arrested is the shame that continues when you're inside prison. There's something about being a human being and being locked up that's inhumane. Um, and that really strips you of, of, of I guess, your dignity, you know, your humanity. Mm. So I felt you know, I had to work through that for a while. Going in, um, I had to get used to what it was like inside prison. You know, it was a whole new world. It was huge. There were six, 1,600 women on the compound. I mean, it was a camp. I mean, now I go on to a medium security yard where guys are shanking each other and stabbing each other. And, you know, that didn't go on where I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I, yeah, I saw somebody, you know, somebody escaped, somebody committed suicide, you know, somebody, you know, hit another girl with a lock in her sock, like these things happened, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like I was afraid I was going to get shanked.
0: Yeah. And was this all women, or was it men and women?
1: No, it's all women. No, gotcha. women are incarcerated with women. There, there are no mixed. Yeah. But, but by the way, even in female prisons, there are male guards. I don't understand that.
0: Yeah. Isn't that I weird? I remember reading that. Not weird. Yeah, it's super weird because like.
1: No, you're dressing around them. They're counting you at night while you're sleeping. Like, they have to count you at night. The guards would go around in the camp. They'd have to touch you. So you'd feel this touch on your blanket. they have to either touch your arm or your leg. Men.
0: And and you wrote something really chilling, or to me that was chilling, where um, you were talking about, like, the feeling of being locked up is so inhumane, and you're just so starving for human connection that in a in a way like you don't even care who this human is but the touch mm. feels good because it's like your body's yearning yeah. for this yeah
1: well i mean t- when they touched it count i mean that really that didn't feel good yeah um but there was a yearning for touch and i yeah. think you know if i was going to be really racy you know it's interesting because women well, i mean women need relationship right and that's what i realized inside prison like women Hang out together. They want to be together. And I'll tell you what, sex goes on in prison. Orange is the New Black is, is true. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I saw it happen. But, you know, you walk in and girls hit the compound and they're like, oh, who can be my girlfriend? Who can be my girlfriend? And, you know, it's mostly for companionship. Yeah. You know? And, it, you know, whether it turns sexual or not, that's another thing. But... um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, even having male guards in prison, I remember, you know, I sat down with a a girl on her bunk one day, white girl with blonde hair, had been in for seven years, and she was telling me stories. She's like, yeah, I had an affair with a guard. I'm like, you did? She goes, yeah. She goes, Jen, it goes on here, too. And I thought about that, and then finally this one guard shows up, or let's call it, well, they were called guards, um, and he was in charge of the rack and he was I could tell he was educated. like he had a university degree. Mm-hmm. and he was cute. and I remember he would do count, and it was really uh, disturbing to me to be attracted to a guard. yeah, because I started fantasizing. Yeah. like that's normal. Uh-huh. So it's not okay to have men in female prisons. It's not okay. yeah, and females are in male prisons. This stuff goes on.
0: I mean, it's like if we take a step back, we're humans. we're were made to procreate. It's like, so then when you're put in this situation, of Mm -hmm. course that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, and see, that's what they do. In prison, you can't touch. Mm -hmm. Like, we weren't allowed to hug each other. We weren't supposed to touch each other at all. You know, so no touch. You're away from everybody that you love, all of your belongings. So prison is an experiment to take away love. Yeah. That's it, period, in my opinion.
0: And how did you, what was your... How did you get through this? Like, were you? I, I remember hearing something that you did have a spiritual practice before going in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had gone to India. I, I had a guru I followed. I'd done a lot of work on myself, luckily, um, which made it harder and also easier to be in, and harder because. I could feel over the compound, oh my gosh, the negativity. It was like this cloud of negativity hovering over the compound. Women would complain. And, and it was really easy for my mind to latch on to this feeling like, I'm not OK. I'm not, not OK. Mm-hmm. I'm not OK. And that's why there's this phrase, you know, um, do your time one day at a time, right? Take it one day at a time. And that's how you have to do it, because all I wanted to do is to know when I was going to get out. Because I didn't know when I, I didn't have an out date. You didn't? No, I I, 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 knew, I, was in this program where you could get one year off your sentence. Well, I didn't know if I was in the program yet, so I didn't know if I was going to get that year off. Um, luckily, I ended up spending only 17 months on a three-year sentence wow. because I got immediate release, mm-hmm. which only happens like once a year to people. So that's mm. a whole other story. And why did you get
0: immediate release?
1: Because I was cooperating, and everybody ended up cooperating, by the way, and just, again, hands up, I wasn't the first one to cooperate, Um, but it was tied to another case, and so I had a Rule 35 in, which is getting your due credit further than what you'd gotten. Mm -hmm. So literally, it was like, I remember getting a call from my ex or my boyfriend who was taking care of me while I was incarcerated. You know, FYI, anybody that's incarcerated needs somebody to take care of them on the outside, Mm -hmm. so...
0: Um, and And if you don't have that person on the outside, oh, it's
1: hard, you know, I mean, you need to pay to be incarcerated. You, you, you have to buy things to have what you need in prison. It costs money Hmm. to be incarcerated. So, and to have somebody on the outside that helps you connect to other people, to your attorney, to take care of things like life doesn't stop just because you're incarcerated. Yeah. Um. But anyways, he calls me, and he's like, Jen, I think you could be getting released tomorrow. And I'm like, what? Like I was like, whoa, that's intense. And there's this little red phone that sits on the desk of the officer station in each range. And when it rings, it's usually something really important. And it rang. And I remember I was, I was in another building, though. But somebody came and got me, and she said, you just got immediate release. And that meant I had to, had to be off the compound by 4 p.m., What? I was out. Girls were crying, they were sobbing the whole day. It was like I was a superstar, like, Oh my god, did you hear? Jennifer Myers got immediate release. Like it's everybody's dream. Yeah. Right? Was it
0: Almost sad like
1: no, it's sad. Because
0: are you feeling, like, all this empathy for, like, all the other women Well, yeah,
1: like, because, you know, th- it wasn't magical. Yeah. Like, it, it was very clear what had happened. I had a rule 35, and it went through. But it yeah. gives women false hope. Like, oh, it could happen to me. It could happen to me. Mm-hmm. And that's not the okay part. Yeah. So, um...
0: And what yeah. is, what's that we, like? I know
1: we sidetracked, but yeah. No,
0: I know. I mean, oh my gosh, I have a million questions. So but like, what? So then you're you're out. Like, you don't have much time to prepare. Like, what is What is going through your head now that you're free? Like, what is that even like? Is it incredible to just take a fucking oh my hot shower? God, like, so like you what know what do it, you even do?
1: And I, what I want to say right now is I have to preface it by saying that I would never say I was only in for 17 months because, in my opinion, one day is too long. But now I work with men who are never getting out of prison that have been in for 50 years. So for me to talk about this, sometimes I feel really selfish, but it's true. It had affected me forever. And when I got out, I remember I had on my prison clothes. You know, I didn't have time to have somebody ship me clothes in. My parents came to pick me up. It was a, First of all, it was a fight. I, I was crying all day because they wanted me to get released to Ohio or or to Michigan where my charge had been anywhere but California and I had to fight to get California so it was a very upsetting day but my parent and and the officer said that I was being very selfish to have my parents buy me a plane ticket and that I should just take a bus so um, but my parents picked me up and so I remember going to Walmart to like I had nothing like like I needed everything and it took me like two hours to even purchase anything because I was so overwhelmed in the store like choice too huh it was choice yeah I'm like oh my god and I mean I bought the stupidest things I mean I looked ridiculous but yeah it was choice I was completely ungrounded and I remember we went to dinner that night but what struck me the next morning because I was still sort of in shock I went to a coffee shop and one thing I had missed the most was like I smoke a coffee so I literally go to a coffee shop and I'm standing there and it was very striking the moment that the cashier said to me what do you want and I'm like, what do I want? Oh, my God, really? Like, you're asking me what I want? And I ordered a coffee, and it was just really crazy. Like, it felt so freeing that I could I could have what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it was really weird when I got back
0: <sighs> for a while. I think, like, after watching your TED Talk, which, again, we'll link it. Can you say the name of it again? It's, don't, it's not... Can you,
1: Don't tell me what you did wrong. Tell me what you can do right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got literally chilled watching it. And I'm not just saying Mm. that. It's on TED.com too. (laughs) Um, And just reading everything, I think the thing that's troubled me or Mm -hmm. like that I'm just sitting here and then I want to ask you about is like people have committed awful things. Mm -hmm. Inherently, they are not awful. Mm -hmm. They've been hurt and then they're hurting other people. Again, if someone hurt someone I loved, it would be very hard for me to look at them. But if it's kind of like someone else hurt someone, then I meet mm-hmm. them five years later. How do you grapple with like the empathy of, of just, like forgiving people? Like, I mean, you, you, you. How long have you been doing this work where you've been going back into prison every week?
1: Um. <laughs> about three years three going years. back into prison mm-hmm. but you've
0: been involved in
1: oh since I hit the ground running since 2010 I've been involved yeah. so in, a decade yeah a decade
0: yeah I think I mean I, I'm, I'm not like asking a clear question here yeah. but there's just all these things that yeah. for me are going through ahead of like first like as someone who's privileged to have never had to go to prison mm-hmm. or like been involved in a family right where like that would have influenced me to go down that path yeah. I'm like what can I what can we do or just understand about this whole system that could at least benefit other people from preventing going down that route? And then it's also the part of me is like, how do we fix? Like these are, there are all of these nonviolent crimes mm-hmm. of people in jail, which to me is the most mm-hmm. sickening part. It's like, there's just, it's like almost like I'm, I'm scared to look, but I know I want to mm-hmm. look because it's humanity.
1: Yeah. You know, I think, God, it's so, I, I, as much as there's not like a, clear-cut question there's not a clear-cut answer Mm -hmm. and you know I've been working doing work on um you know um Preventative, like working with teens, like not make you know making good choices, and you know I have I do that with my nonprofit. I have a program, and I've also you know been working with San Diego U.S. Federal Probation, working with women coming out of prison, so restorative, and then the men inside prison, you know, which is helping to, them to transform before they're released. So helping to change, let's say you know violence on a yard, mm-hmm. you know. So there's like three different pockets, yeah. and then there's changing sentencing policy. And, you know, so if I was to say what could break the system that's very broken, Mm -hmm. you know, it's possibly from all different angles, but maybe it's from the top down. I think we have to look at changing our sentencing policy. Mm -hmm. You know, we get a chance to vote on these laws. So when they come up, really take a look at it. Yeah. Really investigate and look at the different angles and know what we're voting on. Um, Yeah. Where's
0: a resource for people can go?
1: You, you know, I, I, there's, there's so many different organizations that are focusing on sentencing policy. If one place that I love is FAM, and that's Families Against Minimum Mandatory. So that is trying to break down the minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines, which that's what incarcerates um, a ton, hundreds of thousands of people on nonviolent crime on these draconian lengthy sentences. So if you want to get involved in something, definitely get involved in that. FAM.
0: FAM. Gotcha. We'll make sure to link that. Yeah.
1: There's also some justice centers focusing on um, working on changing some juvie laws. You know, so basically, you know, we're trying to get rid completely of, you know, juvies now when you're incarcerated as a juvie, you can be tried as an adult Mm -hmm. and get life in prison. We had one of our guys, who was sentenced as an adult, who had life in prison, um, get out, I think he's 42, he got out like a year a year ago now, a year and mm-hmm. a half ago, on a GV law that
0: changed, wow. a Supreme Court so ruling. So he went in under 18.
1: He was 16, I think, when he was sentenced, Yeah, and he's 40, mm-hmm. and he only got out because of a law that changed.
0: Yeah. This is maybe a little bit of a intense question, yeah. but like... So I'm. Uh, um, you've sat, of course, with people who've murdered people, mm-hmm. who've raped people. Mm-hmm. Like, what's have you seen these people change? And like, how how do you like? What's that process from maybe when you just started this? Because I could imagine if I was about to, you know, sit and talk with someone who's committed these crimes, I would be feeling like pretty nervous. Um, and then to what's your perspective like now that you've been doing this work? Like, how do you? Mm-hmm see these people how do you treat them how do you like hold space for them
1: well you know honestly instantly when i went into prison um because i'd been incarcerated Mm -hmm. i felt definitely a commonality with anybody inside prison Mm -hmm. i wasn't afraid of the men um i for whatever reason i had no fear going in the minute they come up to you there's so much Mm open-heartedness it's you're not even thinking about a crime that they committed they feel so human to me yeah you know at certain points, definitely, I start to understand and start to see some of the cases that the men and what they actually had done, because mm-hmm. some are very easy to find. Mm-hmm. Not that I want to go looking. Yeah, and it's been a struggle for me to correlate. Wow, this person actually did this, you know, and that's that's hard. I've had to work on that, but I come from my heart that that we're all human, and I do not judge them, and and I see them transform. Like I, some of the men have completely done a 180, and, and I see them grow, and I see them change, and it does happen inside prison. And this is what my understanding is, is that when people who are incarcerated, which is a very dense, very tight place to transform, when they actually start transforming, it breaks hearts open. People on the outside are not doing this work. It's the hardest place to transform. It creates the biggest transformation, and we should honor, we should honor those people.
0: <laughs> wow. That's what I believe. And, and I guess, because you've probably seen cases, I mean, if so if someone is, like, in jail for life, mm-hmm. do you see the when this transformation happens, do they start, like, is it possible for them to be living, like, at least in a peaceful mental state while in prison? Or? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, it depends. I mean, there was one guy who started to do transform, and again, on some yards, you know, there's a lot in state prison, in higher security yards, there's a lot of prison politics. Mm-hmm. So there are prison gangs, yeah. and... Um, there was a guy who was very revered, had a very high profile as a, you know, a leader who, who did a switch completely a 180 and said, I'm out of the lifestyle. People couldn't believe it. People on the yard, the guys couldn't believe it. And he just got out of it. And, and, you know, he was honored for that. Um, and, and he has life in prison. So I think this is a good point you bring up. Mm-hmm. It's called LWOP, Life Without Pearl. Per- yeah. So somebody has LWOP and, when guys make the decision to transform when they have LWOP, I mean, that takes a ton of courage. Think about it. You think you may never be getting out. But one thing that they do, you know, they, I think the guys that transform inside prison who do have life without parole, they believe in their hearts there must be a way that they can get out at some point. They believe it. Yeah. So without the, a doubt. 110% one the, they're getting out. Interesting. Yeah
0: yeah because i i, I it 's hard for me to imagine like accepting some sort of reality where like oh, this is it Mm-mm. and I wonder even if in even with that glimpse, if there's still ways to just you know
1: find peace find
0: peace you know i mean there I would well, hope there is I,
1: I think there's an, a certain acceptance that begins to happen, and not resolution acceptance, but like like a flow like a letting go i mean i mean you have to say you know i mean i guess there is some sense that you could become let's say enlightened inside prison because it sure takes a lot of strength to find peace you know with feeling like you're never getting out of this world mm-hmm. you know and there is also something called becoming institutionalized you know that's a term yeah. you know get used to that world you get used to it mm-hmm. becomes more normal than the other world which starts disappearing mhm I mean, even when I was in for 17 months, I could feel how tenuous it was, my my connection to the outside world. I felt like I was disappearing. That was only 17 months. Yeah. So, it's, it's, I know, it's a tough topic.
0: Yeah. And what <sighs> was, was it like a, a cathartic experience for you writing the book?
1: Yes. It was. I knew I wanted to write a book. I started writing poetry when I was inside prison. That's what saved me. When something weird would happen, hmm. I would start to write poetry and I would type on the computer. And I started typing stories and poetry. So you had a computer? Like, oh, sorry. Uh, so I, that, I shouldn't have works. said computer. Typewriter. Oh, oh gotcha. But, but we did. When I was incarcerated, actually in federal prison camps, you yeah. can email. There's a, a system called Core Links. Oh, wow. There's no internet. hmm but anyways, I started writing, yeah. so I had some sense that I was going to write, and mm-hmm. it was a childhood dream that I had always wanted to do, and it, it was cathartic, and then it was also scary once it came out. You know, I think um, my dad wasn't very happy about it. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I only read a little bit of the prologue and, you know, read the Mm. reviews. And and you won a bunch of awards for it, too, like Mm. a writing award in 2014, I think it was.
1: Yeah, San Diego Book and Writing Awards. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. And then my poetry's been published. I won the Penn Prison Writing Contest and had my poetry published in a book called Razor Wire Women. And yeah, I love writing.
0: Wow. And when you were in uh, prison, like, I'm really just fascinated by the concept of faith and You know I have my own spiritual meditation practices Mm -hmm. like what what if there was something like what what are you like holding on to and I know if you're open to it uh discussing like you've done plant medicine work Mm -hmm. like how what is your view on like faith and humanity and like kind of going above this all but like you know of course you're waking up and you're in this body or but then there's like this higher connection Like how, how, what was that like in prison? And then how do you view Mm -hmm. that now Mm -hmm. through all the work you've Mm -hmm. done?
1: Well, luckily I went into prison after, you know, diving very deeply into spiritual work um, and different communities Mm -hmm. for like three or four years or even longer. Um, And I believe in, fully believe in life after death. I believe that, you know, we are definitely souls having a human experience and this is like here to teach us. Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt, what's hard And being in that space is being in dense spaces, because I felt so expansive. Mm -hmm. You know, I was swimming with dolphins. I was, you know, diving into meditation. Um, In prison, you know, because it's so noisy and and no privacy, it was very a struggle to keep my sanity and to stay connected to that. Um, I worked the course of miracles um, every day, which was a saving, saving grace for me. Um, I dived in and, and again, this wasn't quite your question, but I want to I want to answer this. Yeah. I dived into religious services. One thing in prison is there's can be some extremely um, deep religion going on because people gravitate towards that for mm-hmm. meaning. And I remember being in this Bible belt service which i'm not that at all people speaking in tongues this and that and i'll tell you i felt the devotion in that room and i felt the connection of spirit god the universe and i was crying and sobbing it was so powerful there is so much devotion going on inside prison it was amazing and i did three or four sweat lodges and again wait in prison In prison there's there's usually each each prison yard has usually Native Americans, and they're allowed to do sweat lodges. So, oh my God. I, I asked, I was able to go, and literally the teepee, you know, the little, it was it was like a little teepee, right, that they yeah. made with tarps, like the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And it was so small, and there were, usually three or four of us could only fit. We had to be on our stomachs, on the dirt the whole time. It was probably one of the hottest, most intense sweat lodges I've ever done each time. Um, it's amazing. It was amazing. Wow. Um, so... Did prison change my point of view? Um, You know, it wasn't a fun experience. Um, it, it, It opened my eyes up to a world that I didn't know existed. I felt very privileged to see it. I came out honoring life so much more, respecting and valuing it, and honoring relationships and really realizing that connection and relationship is the most important thing to me. Because that's what was taken away. That's what it felt like was taken away. And, I, and so the, the depth of value I experienced. Um, other than that, you know, do I think we're going to fix the system? No. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I don't proclaim that it can be fixed. We can do a little bit good here and there. Mm-hmm. But you know, this, this is the world that we're living on, and I don't think it's changing. You know, we can just change ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't have... My, my, I, my little rosy glasses were taken off Through my experience, I still believe in fairies. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Very important.
1: Um, But um, hopefully I don't feel too pessimistic, but I feel quite realistic in some ways, although I feel more childlike in some ways. Mm -hmm. So that's some takeaways.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing all this. And just before, you know, we wrap, I would love Mm. just if people want to read your book, Watch your TED talk, find out more about your doing. Like, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Um, yeah, so, um, well, well, my nonprofit website, Rise to Empower, is www.risetoempower.org. Um, my um, LA Myers is a consulting website that I have, but also Jennifer Myers dot co is my website so and you can find my book on Amazon um and and that's about it and and I do want to share one more thing before we end though I want to say that I definitely believe that we do have to remember that the system is broken that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world per capita in the world so something definitely needs to change And if I was going to say anything, uh, besides changing sentencing policy, I would love for people to really think about, to understand that they do not know who we're locking up, you know, and for how long and why, and that really something needs to change.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I just want to say thank you again, seriously. Like, I, again, like, we've been working together for a while, but it wasn't until, like, I started diving in and hearing, like, you can just feel the passion, in the way you speak, in the way you write, it's so coming from this place of, it's inspiring, and and the reason I say inspiring is because I think everyone goes through different experiences in life, Mm -hmm. and we're all just trying to make the most of the meaning, and, and, and seeing how you've taken this full-on, and you've, you had an experience, and you, you're, like, committed to making a difference for other people, like, in preventing those experiences, Mm -hmm. it's just, uh,
1: well, it's it's a calling. I yeah. was brought to my calling. Some people are called. And, mm. and really, is there a choice in a calling? I don't think so. Mm. So it's not me. But thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, thank you.
0: Wow. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Jennifer and her incredible story and seeing how she really took the experience and turned it into something Powerful and meaningful with all the work she's doing in the world. So, if you want to get in touch with Jennifer, check out the links in the show notes, which have her information. And again, thank you for tuning in for another episode. If you feel called, you can leave a review on iTunes. And if you have any guests that you'd be interested in me having on the show, please, please write to me and let me know as I'm always interested in hearing who you'd be interested in hearing on the show. So again, thanks for tuning in. Much love and until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoy that conversation. If you found value from this episode and want to make sure you're notified when new episodes are released, please subscribe to the show Curious with Jake Heilbrunn on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you're tuning in. And if you feel called, please leave a review on iTunes. That would be super appreciated and it allows for others to help find the show. Lastly, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show and what you found valuable, your takeaways and what you found interesting. So please let me know on Instagram at Jake or wherever you feel called to connect. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode. Stay curious.